Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. We are continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 8, verse 16, through chapter 9, verse 12. You can find this on page 557 in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, or on page 661 in the Red Pew Bibles, which are larger print. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that after worship today, we have a family meal. This is an opportunity for us to uh, share our favorite recipes, to gather around each other, to eat, and to fellowship. Uh, even if you did not bring food, we would love for you to stay. We would love for you to uh, be with us. We would love to get to know you. Or if you forgot, we would love to continue to get to know you. Uh, Father, or we would welcome you to this family meal. Also, as you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, any children ages 5 through 5th grade who would like, we offer Caruso Kids Zone. They'll go out that back door. Uh, those kids will be looking at the question and answer that we did today from the New City Catechism. So parents, I would encourage you after they come back over lunch, actually all of us, I would encourage you to ask them what they learned, what they learned in their New City Catechism study. Once you've gotten to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16, through chapter 9, verse 12. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work that God had done, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, <clears throat> and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil all in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they will go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life 
that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I say that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor the favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Father, we thank you for this word, as strange and confusing as it seems. We pray that you would help us to hide the truth of your gospel that's hidden in this word in our hearts, that you would help us to understand with our mind the things that you are trying to teach us, and that we would work out with our hands the truths that are in this text. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We are studying Ecclesiastes. For those of you who are not excited by that statement, we're almost done. For those of you who are excited about that statement, it's so great! But before we look at any text in Scripture, it's important for us to know what that text is about because context is... Yes! For those of you who didn't know that answer, that's okay. I'll ask again, either this week or in the future. Context is king, and what we mean by that is that anytime we open up the scriptures, we need to know what the context is of that letter, who it was written by, who it was written to, when it was written, what the scenario was that was going on, who the author was writing to, and why, so that we can better understand exactly what this says, and so that the Spirit can help us to understand what it means to us today. Ecclesiastes is part of wisdom literature. As we read, we need to understand, is this poetry, is this prose, what is this? And Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, which means sometimes it has hyperbole, sometimes it has straight statements, sometimes it uses poetry, it's kind of all over the place. But the purpose is to bring you to a place of better understanding, a place of wisdom. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon or a Solomon-like figure. I like to think of it as Solomon because all the signs point that way. The only reason we say a Solomon-like figure is because he didn't sign it like he signed some of his other letters, but maybe he just forgot that day. So it's written by a wise king. It's written to the people of Israel at a time when they're transitioning from an agricultural setting to a more commercial setting. You see, in an agricultural setting, they go into the land and they plant their seeds and they pray. And whether or not those plants grow up is entirely on the Lord. And so they're trusting in God and his work. Now that they're in the Holy Land, which strategically thinking is a place of many different roads, ports, and areas of travel, so there's lots of trade going through, they're shifting from strictly agricultural into a more commercial type setting. A place where they can make money by using the things that they have around them. So Solomon is warning them of some of the scenarios and situations that come in this transition from ag agricultural to commercial. And there are two big themes that run all throughout Ecclesiastes. The idea of vanity and the idea of under the sun. Vanity is the Hebrew word havel, which means breath or smoke or wisp. And so it's like the idea of trying to capture smoke in your hands or capture air in your hands. 
You can't do it. It leaks out. And even if somehow you manage to do it, somebody would say, show me. You go like this, and it's, it's gone. Chasing after the wind. Vanity is trying to capture things that you can't capture. And then the concept of under the sun is this phrase that Solomon uses over and over again to mean the things of this world, the things without God, the things that are down here on this world. So having set our stage of Ecclesiastes, today we're going to be looking at the end of 8 and most of chapter 9. Before we do that, though, I have a question for you. What causes you stress or anxiety? What causes you to worry? Some of the most common causes of stress, anxiety, and worry are economy, the politics, your job, your kids, health, uh, the potential for death. Maybe it's all of those. Maybe it's some of those. Maybe it's none of those. Whatever it is, anxiety and worry kill our joy. Now, we've been looking at Solomon as in chapter 7 and 8. He, he, he seems to be pulling out his hair as he's saying, why is it that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? He's trying to understand what seems to be going on all around them. The people who are following God, who are being diligent, who are being righteous, who should prosper seem to be dying earlier, or that seems to happen. And those who are not following God, who are following their own desires, seem to be thriving. And so in 7 and 8, Solomon is asking this question, and now here he turns. And in 16 and 17, he admits that wisdom is not going to answer that question. He says that we have a limit on the amount of wisdom, number one, that we can know, and number two, that God is going to share with us. Now, we ended our sermons in chapters 7 and 8 with this idea of God is sovereign and God is in control, so that even if we don't understand what's going on, we trust in who he is. But now, Solomon is saying in 16 and 17 of chapter 8, that God will not share everything with us. We will not ever know everything. And anybody claims to know everything doesn't. It's simple. You just say, okay, what am I thinking now? Well, I don't know that. Well, of course you don't. We can't know everything. And so when we have these worries, when we have these concerns, and we're trying to understand them, we have to remember that we can't know everything. But that just causes our worry to escalate, right? So what are we to do when we worry and have no idea why something is under or why something is happening? In this section of text, we're going to see that Solomon is going to use death and the certainty of death as a way to point us to worry. And he's going to show us that because of the certainty of death, we as followers of God are called to enjoy the life that we do have. Because of the certainty of death, we're called to enjoy the life that we do have. And so Solomon is going to do this by looking at two different things. Number one, he's going to look at death. And number two, he's going to look at life. Now, this is going to be a contrast. We have death on the one hand and life on the other. So let's start by looking at death. We see Solomon talking about death. And maybe you picked up on that in verses 2 through 6 and 11 through 12 of chapter 9. He's talking about how the same result happens for all. He's telling us that life is short. He mentions nine different times in this section that death is coming. 
And he does this in three different ways. First, he shows us that death is certain in verses 2 and 3. Then he shows us that death is sad in verses 4, 5, and 6. And finally, he shows us that death is potentially sudden in verses 11 and 12. So while looking at death, he says death is certain, death is sad, and death is potentially sudden. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 and how death is certain. Solomon uses this idea of comparisons as he's dealing with death. If you look at the comparisons in verse 2 and 3, he says, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. He's showing us this back and forth, but what is he saying in those comparisons? Every single one of those still faces death. So what's the main point here? Whether we're good or whether we are not good, we still face death. Commentator O'Donnell put it this way, morality is no protection against mortality. Morality is no protection against mortality. What he's saying there is, if we live a good life, which we've seen already in chapter 7 and 8, that doesn't guarantee that we won't die or that we won't die sooner than we feel like we should. I would go so far as to say morality is not only not a protection against mortality, but also it is not a protection from hell. We see this in the New Testament. And this is going to come as a big surprise to many people. They're going to say, I lived a good life. Well, good in whose eyes? Even Jesus says, no one is good but God. And so if they say, I lived a good life, therefore I deserve to get into heaven, but I don't trust Jesus because that religion's for whatever, there are, excuse me, they are going to be shocked. And this is scary. This is terrifying because every single one of us knows somebody who is trusting in their own morality in order to get into heaven. They're trusting in how good they are. They're trusting in the things they are doing. They're trusting in that they are a good person. And that's all that they are trusting in in order to get into heaven. But here Solomon is showing us, and he already has in 7 and 8, that morality is not a protection against mortality. We've already said it once today, Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What it's saying is over here, the things that we can do, the things that we can earn, the things that we can deserve, I don't care who you are, is death. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> the only thing that we can earn is death. But God has a better plan for us. God has a better plan, and that plan is that he would give us eternal life. And so as we've gone through this, we've said over and over and over again, the promise, the hope that we're yearning for is eternal life, is walking with God in the garden, is Revelation 21.4 where he says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death, no more suffering anymore. Instead, you will be with me. That's what we're clinging to, not the things of this world, not the things under the sun, as Solomon has said, but the hope of Jesus. And the only way we can get that is through faith in Christ, not our morality, not the good things we do.
Only through faith in Christ can we receive eternal life. Listen, our hearts, our desires incline towards sin. Even when our outward acts look good, our hearts are often turned towards sin. Even when people look at us and say, wow, look at all the good things you are doing, our hearts turn towards sin. If we were able to somehow on the projector put up every single thought you have had this week, how many of you would volunteer for us all to watch those thoughts? Yeah, I don't think any of us would. Because we know that our, at the heart of our hearts, we are sinful. And so not only is our sin keeping us from earning our way into heaven, because we can't do that, but our sin is guaranteeing our death. And it's a deserved death. That doesn't sound comfortable to say, but if we look at chapter 9, verse 3, it is a deserved death. Death is certain and, by the way, deserved. Not only does Solomon tell us that death is certain, but then in verses 4 through 6, he tells us that death is sad. Death is sad. In verses 4 through 6, Solomon shows us there are things that the dead do not have. The dead do not have knowledge, do not have wages, do not have memory, do not have emotion like love, hate, and envy. They have no portion in this world. Now, we need to step back for a second, and we need to remember that context is... Ha ha I caught you off guard. Context is king. And so in the Old Testament, they don't look at death as the doorway through which eternity comes. They look at death as the end, as the end of life. And so when we see this word sheol, as we see, uh, we saw it this morning in our reading, uh, Jim referenced how it's in Psalms. It's in the book of Jonah going down to the gates of sheol. That's the, the word that represents death itself, the end of life, not the gateway to eternity. So let's just clear that up because some of you are like, well, wait, wait, when, when we die, if we trust in Jesus, we have the hope of eternity. Yes, we do. But death in terms of time on this earth, the end of life, dead people no longer have those things. Dead people are no longer living. And that's why Solomon says that it's better for a living dog than for a dead lion. You might think this is a weird comparison, but in the culture, in the context, dogs in Israel were seen as loathed beings. Israelites loathed dogs. Now, I know a lot of you are like, what? I love my dog. But to the Israelites, dogs were dirty. They were kind of like rats, if you will. Lions were lauded in Israel. Lions were the peak of the food chain, the pinnacle of all of God's animal creation. So what Solomon is doing here is saying, you know that thing you hate? A live one of those is better than that thing that you venerate, a dead lion. A live dog is better than a dead lion because death is sad. And the dead lion can no longer enjoy the things of this earth. So Solomon is pointing out to us death is certain. Then he says death is sad. And in verses 11 and 12, he says death is potentially sudden. Life is unpredictable. Ask Eli about that. This week, he went to a trampoline park, and I think the first jump, was it the first jump? So one of the first jumps he made, he broke his arm. 
That's not how he anticipated spending that day, was with a broken arm in the hospital. That's not how Melissa anticipated spending that day, but life is unpredictable. And I think this is something we not only acknowledge, but it's something that we recognize. Think about rooting for the underdog when maybe you watch sports and uh, the, the finals of whatever sporting event is coming up. If your party, your team is not in it, then you root for two teams, you know, you're watching two teams that are playing that you don't care about. Usually we root for the underdog. We want to see that unpredictability. We want to see that that guarantee is not guaranteed. And death is the same way. And Solomon is telling this by giving us two pictures. The first one is a fish in a net. You remember uh, fishing being close to the Mediterranean and the seas. They would throw out their nets, and a fish is just having this nice little day, you know, and then the net starts to sink in, and then they pull it, and all of a sudden, no matter how smart this fish is normally, that's the end. Same thing for a bird. It uses the idea of a bird being caught in a snare. All of a sudden, the bird's life is over. Life can end quickly. So Solomon is pointing to us, or pointing us to the reality that death is certain, death is sad, and death is potentially sudden. And he does this so that as now he turns to look at life, we can look at it in terms of death. So now that we've looked at death being certain, sad, and sudden, let's look at life. Solomon sets the stage with death because he wants us to be in that mentality that sometimes we get in, where life feels pointless, we're aggravated, we're frustrated, things didn't work out the way we wanted it to, and so we throw up our hands and feel like life is pointless. But Solomon's saying life is not pointless. Instead, all throughout Ecclesiastes, what has he told us to do? Enjoy the things we have, enjoy our food, and for the sixth time, Solomon calls us to enjoy life. In verses 7 through 10, he's telling us, he didn't talk about death just to depress us. He didn't talk about death to discourage us. He talked about death to reinforce that God is in control. Chapters 7 and 8 talked about these situations where life doesn't seem fair. And he said, God is in control. Now here in 8 and 9, he's talking about death and how sometimes that doesn't seem fair, but he is reinforcing that God is in control. And for the sixth time in Ecclesiastes, he is saying, because God is in control, we can be joyous and we can be thankful for what God has given so Solomon here gives emphatic exhortations to enjoy. How's that for some alliteration? <laughs> emphatic exhortations to enjoy God's gifts. O'Donnell puts it like this in his commentary. There are five imperatives. Imperatives are commands. There are five imperatives to feast on. Go, eat, drink, enjoy, and do. The central command is to enjoy life. How do we enjoy life? How so? Here are three possible but not exhaustive ways. Enjoy your wine, enjoy your wife, and enjoy your work. Now, he says, don't worry, I won't leave out the husband, the clothing, the bread, the oil on the head, all that kind of stuff. But this is an easy way for us to remember. He says, enjoy your wine, enjoy your wife, and enjoy your work. So let's look at these. Verse 7, enjoy your wine. 
Gradanus, another commentator, says that in verse 7 we see this first word is go. That's an emphatic wake-up call saying go. It's a command to go and do something. Stop bemoaning death. He's just gotten done talking about death. Stop bemoaning death and start enjoying the things that God has given you. And he starts by saying start enjoying your bread and wine. Bread and wine were staples of the diet of an Israelite. They were staples of Israel's daily existence. I mean, think about it. When we think about communion, we have bread and wine. Those were just natural things that were there every single day. And so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are called to be thankful. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We're looking at page 911 in the Blue Pew Bibles. In Acts chapter 2, in 1, we've had Jesus uh, ascend into heaven. In chapter 2, we have Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And then at the very end of Acts chapter 2, we have all these converts now after Peter's sermon. And we get to see, we have this privilege of seeing how that early church works. And in verses 46 and 47, we read this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As they ate together, as they shared together, as they feasted together, they did it with glad and generous hearts. Solomon is telling us to enjoy our wine, enjoy those natural things, the food that we have, every single bite that we take. And then he moves on in verses 8 and 9 to say, not only to enjoy your wine, but also enjoy your wife. Now, this isn't just a command to husbands. As I told the Sunday school class this morning, Jesus, or, or Scripture often talks in the masculine form, but it's talking to everybody. So enjoy your spouses. Yes, wives, you should enjoy your husbands, as, as lazy as they are, speaking only of myself. Um, he's saying, enjoy the gift of your spouse. Now, I know some of you are looking at me like, well, they weren't a gift this morning. But your spouse is a gift from the Lord to you. Yeah, I, I saw like four of you just look at each other. I saw that. Verse 8 is, seems to be confusing, but it's reinforcing this. Let your garments always be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Oil and white clothing symbolize joy. Psalm 45, 7, Revelation 7, 9. All of married life is meant for your joy. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have bad days with your spouse, things are not right. Okay, That just means that God gives us the joy of being married. Marriage is a commitment. It's a lifelong enjoyment. And because of Jesus, we can find joy in our relationships. And here Solomon is saying, especially in marriage. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We go the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have Acts, the history, then we start the letters, Romans, the Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then we move into the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you can find this on page 988 in the Blue Bible. At the very end of this letter, as Paul often does in his letters, he's giving some final instructions to the church. 
And these three verses uh, form some of the most beautiful exhortations that Paul gives us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not just in marriage, but Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, in all things, rejoice, give thanks, recognize God's gifts. But Solomon is saying, particularly in the marriage relationship, God has given you the blessing of your spouse. And even if you have a sharp elbow and have nudged your spouse when I said they were supposed to be a blessing to you, they are. Now, I don't think Solomon here is excluding those who are not married. I think he's using the marriage relationship as a basis because Jesus does that in the New Testament saying that we are the bride of Christ. And so if you're not married, that doesn't mean you don't get to enjoy the other relationships that God has given you. You should take this as enjoy the gifts of the relationships that God has given you, but Solomon uses it specifically and particularly in the marriage relationship. So he says, enjoy the wine, enjoy your wife. And in verse 10, he says, enjoy your work. If you look at verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Enjoy the things that you have. Commentator Frederick says, at the end of the day, Ecclesiastes is a lecture on the theology of work, not on the meaning of life. And while some people will have struggles with that. We have seen that over and over and over again, how he says you are supposed to be enjoying the things that God has given you, whether it be the physical things, whether it be the relationships, or whether it be your work. This isn't the first time we've seen this. In Genesis 1, 28, we see God give this commandment to us to not only um, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, we're supposed to take care of the earth and so God is giving us this job, telling us that we are supposed to do that with all our might. And here, we are reminded of that and called to work with all our heart. In light of death, in light of Sheol, which he even brought back up in this verse, give your work all that you have. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. You can find this on 985. Uh, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's GE Power Company, if you want to remember that. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's an exhortation to us that no matter how bad our bosses are, no matter how annoying our fellow employees are, we're still called to work for God's glory. Work as though he is the one watching and the one receiving glory. Enjoy your wine. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your work. Enjoy the many things that God has provided with your food and wine and clothing and housing. Enjoy the relationships that you are in whether it be marriage or otherwise, enjoy the work that God has called you to in light of death, in light of God's sovereignty. Live life with joy. This is the sixth but not final time that Solomon will remind us of this. 
as commentator Brown puts it, Solomon is saying, seize the day before death seizes the self. Death is a reality. Death is something that is sad, is imminent, and is potentially sudden. But instead of worrying about that and dwelling on that uncertainty and having anxiety and, and things like that, trust in the Lord. Enjoy the gifts he has given you. Christ says that because of the hope of the gospel, we are to enjoy life. And Solomon says that here, even before Jesus had that opportunity. So how do we apply this text? It's pretty clear. Enjoy wine, wives, and work. Enjoy wine. Be thankful for every single bite you take. Every time you put clothes on, be thankful that you have been provided for that. Every time you get into a vehicle, be thankful that you have transportation of some way, shape, or form. Look around you and start noting the number of things that God has given you. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy the relationships that you're in. If you are married, enjoy and appreciate your spouse. Take some time to think about them. You need to be doing that. I am speaking primarily to myself. Dates are one of those, what? What's that? Oh, right, yeah, I need to do that. Don't just think you need to do that. Do that, James. Enjoy and appreciate your relationships and particularly your spouse. And not only that, enjoy the wine, enjoy your wife, enjoy your work. Whatever you've been given, whether it fits into a traditional job or not, you have been given something to do, a way to use your gifts and be thankful that God has provided you either with a job or a profession or something so that you can enjoy giving back, giving back some of the gifts that you have. And as you do that, do it with all that you have, as Paul says in Colossians. Give back all that you can. Enjoy your work. In this text, Solomon is reminding us that death is real. But as real as death is, we have hope in Christ. We have hope that this isn't the end, that one day we will walk again with God in the garden. And because of that hope, as we live this life under the sun, we can do it with joy. Remembering who God is, remembering how he is the one who has provided all things, remembering his sovereignty, and enjoying the gifts he's given. The wine, the wives, and the work. That's three easy W's. All the things he's given, all the relationships he's given, and the job that he has given us to do. Let's pray. Father, this is a potentially difficult text and yet you have simplified it for us. You've shown us that death is coming, death is a reality. But in light of that reality, and in light of the fact that you are a sovereign God, one who loves us, one who has promised us great things, in light of Revelation 21.4, that one day you will reverse the effects of sin. You have called us to enjoy this life. Enjoy your provision. Enjoy the relationships that we have. And enjoy the work that we've been given. So Father, as we go out from here, help us to do that well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. 
We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.